just after 2.10, an hour after President Trump ended his speech, the insurrectionist mob overwhelmed Capitol security and made it inside the halls of Congress. Because the truth is, this attack never would have happened but for Donald Trump. And so they came, draped in Trump's flag, and used our flag, the American flag, to batter and to bludgeon. And at 2.30, I heard that terrifying banging on house chamber doors. For the first time in more than 200 years, the seat of our government was ransacked on our watch. That was Congresswoman Madeline Dean choking up as she spelled out how a mob incited by Donald Trump stormed the Capitol, assaulting police officers and threatening the lives of members of Congress and most prominently, Vice President Mike Pence. It was a day filled with emotional moments, including the airing of gut-wrenching videos, some never before seen in public, showing the mob armed with metal baseball bats and bear spray, breaking through police barricades and marauding through the Capitol, looking for Pence and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It was a powerful and harrowing presentation, but will it make a difference? We'll discuss with two legal analysts, former Justice Department official Matt Miller and former federal prosecutor Saul Weisenberg, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So day two of the impeachment trial, of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, and we are joined by the aforementioned Matt Miller and Saul Weisenberg. Matt and Saul, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Great to be here. So I thought that this was really gripping stuff. Um, The showing of those videos, the marauding through the Capitol, the footage of the police officer in pain, screaming as he's being attacked and crunched uh, at the door of the Capitol. And it made me think that there may actually be some Republican senators who are moved by this and might actually vote for conviction. Saul, what do you think? I don't know about that. Um, You're the expert on the politics of it. But I thought from a advocacy point of view, from a litigation point of view, I thought it was uh, a very masterful presentation all in all. Some of the managers were better than others. I thought the star was unquestionably a Swalwell. Can't believe I'm saying that. And, uh, you know, really? but I I, that was, surprises me because I, I, I would not have picked him as the star of the day. I, I thought I thought what was particularly impressive about his performance was he showed the progression of former President Trump's tweets, particularly over the period November, December, and January, and and showed the reaction 
to those tweets by his more violent supporters, the surrounding of the Secretary of State of Michigan's home, the interruptions of the electoral count in various jurisdictions, and showed that he would have undoubtedly, President Trump, have seen the effect of what he did, the effects of what he did. I thought that was very, very powerful because you're trying to show that uh, any idea that the president was surprised that some of our, some of his more loony supporters would uh, do something like this uh, is is fallacious. Matt, I tend to agree. You know, I, I would put it in two categories. I thought the most kind of emotionally powerful uh, 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 pieces of evidence they introduced were all the you know, the tapes showing Mitt Romney being directed by the police officer, Eugene Goodman, to turn and run away, showing how how closely, how close the the senators and the vice president actually were to the rioters. That I thought was emotionally gripping. But And that was new. We hadn't seen and, that and before. I, and that was all new. But you know, that you could you could tell a story about uh the horror in the Capitol that day. And and believe that all the events in the Capitol that day were horrible, and still not believe that Donald Trump was responsible for for, for them. And in fact, you heard one of the only coherent things I think his counsel said yesterday was that you know we'll stipulate that what happened here was terrible, and you'll never hear anyone say otherwise. Although that's of course you know the president himself would probably say otherwise, <laughs> and they introduced yeah. evidence today that he did say other otherwise. Right. Um, but but the I, I thought the more significant portions of the evidence were showing how the president the, the president's behavior leading up to the the riot both in start telling this big lie for months and months and for watching his his supporters behave violently for months uh in, you know condoning his supporters that 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 video of the bus being driven off the road in Texas that he praised and, and then the the you know how he behaved in the hours that the Capitol was actually under siege and how he could have called it off and didn't do anything. I, I thought that in terms of, of pointing to his culpability was incredibly damning. Yeah. I, I thought what the house managers did brilliantly was to isolate Trump uh, as the only figure, the only character uh, in this whole tragedy, uh, other than obviously the attackers themselves who, um, who didn't do the right thing. And I thought what was really interesting was, uh, and clearly well thought out ahead of time, was how they portrayed Pence as a patriot and someone who was faithful to his oath. Uh, And by contrast, Trump spent most of that afternoon attacking Pence. And the mob was going after Pence, looking and the mob for him, was trying to kill saying, him. hang yeah. Matt Mike Pence. Yeah, to, to the point that Saul made and that that, uh, that I was was uh, reiterating, I, I thought one of the really interesting points, you know, that Mike Pence isn't mentioned by those writers without Donald Trump. I mean, there, there's no reason they would have been mad at Mike Pence except for Donald Trump for weeks leading up to that saying Mike Pence is the one that can make a difference and will he do it? And then, of course, once the riot was underway, tweeting again, attacking the vice president for not having intervened in a way, of course, he couldn't actually intervene. I mean, that was that Mike Pence was put in danger because of what Donald Trump said uh, leading up to, to the events of January 6th. Yeah. Look, I think we... I think we all agree that this was uh, a very powerful presentation and good lawyering. But at the end of the day, uh, the question is, have they or are they in the process of making the case 
that uh, Donald Trump committed high crimes and misdemeanors and violated his his oath uh, to protect, preserve, and, and defend the Constitution. Uh, that's the first question. And the second question is, will it actually change uh, any votes? So Saul, uh, why don't you uh, take both of those questions? Well, one is a no-brainer. As Governor Christie said, former Governor Christie, if this is not an impeachable offense, there is no impeachable offense. That's just, that's not even a subject for discussion. The only question is, will it, will it sway any votes? Uh, either because of its own persuasive power or because of some public reaction. You know, I, I doubt it'll move enough, but it certainly, I think, will have an effect on the body politic. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, we'll have to see. I thought that, uh, talking kind of inside baseball or, or litigation, a couple of things that, that, uh, strike me, you really see, and, um, Trey Gowdy pointed this out on Fox earlier in the day. He's still mad Saul about Saul being a, a, a Fox occasional contributor um, and therefore watches it. Which... Not only am I a contributor and a proud contributor yep. uh, and a paid contributor, but I am uh, a law partner of Trey Gowdy. So I'll <laughs> okay. disclose that as well. But he made the point, uh, a good point, that the president's lawyers knew that the House managers were going to have, what, 16 uninterrupted hours, <laughs> however many it is. And so their big moment was yesterday, and that was their moment to make an opening statement uh, that was powerful uh, and that stayed in your mind, and they utter, utterly failed in that. And so now the House managers with a whole day to do their thing, and, and they did it in a, in, a very, uh, in a very expert way, I thought, uh, really I say I was I was surprised by it. And Swalwell wasn't the only one, but I thought he I thought he was the best. Another thing, I think of things always in criminal law terms, because that's been my life on both the prosecution and defense side. And this is a point that has not been made by the House managers. I think it should have been. And it's something I kept thinking about. In criminal law, there's this concept of a false exculpatory statement. If you're a prosecutor, you can you can even get a jury instruction in some jurisdictions, that that when presented with an accusation, if an accused is presented with an accusation against himself and gives a false answer, uh, that can be considered by the jury as evidence of his or her guilt. This isn't exactly the same thing, but one of the things that really struck me was all the times in his in his in his four years in office, particularly toward the very end where the president is asked to condemn a particular statement. This even started during the 2016 campaign when he's asked to condemn David Duke. And he says, well, I really don't know anything about David Duke, which was a lie, right? And then he's asked about the Proud Boys. Uh, I really don't know much about Proud Boys. And then he's asked about QAnon. Well, I don't really know much about QAnon. I know they're against, I know they're against child pornography. Uh, that to me is a point that should be made because it ties into the overall presentation of the House managers. He knows exactly who these people are. And so when he says in late September in the debate with Joe Biden, he says all of a sudden, Proud Boys, what does he say? Stand back and stand by. He knows exactly what he's doing. So when he sends these tweets, 
And when he incites the crowd, he knows what he's doing. Um, along those lines, there was another moment very early on that I thought was really powerful um, during Jamie Raskin's uh, opening presentation today, in which he talked about one of the Capitol police officers breaking down at the end of that day. I think we have the clip. One of our Capitol officers who defended us that day was a longtime veteran of our force, a brave and honorable public servant who spent several hours battling the mob as part of one of those blue lines defending the Capitol in our democracy. For several hours straight, as the marauders punched and kicked and mauled and spit upon and hit officers with baseball bats and fire extinguishers, cursed the cops and stormed our Capitol, he defended us and he lived every minute of his oath of office. And afterwards, overwhelmed by emotion, he broke down in the rotunda. And he cried for 15 minutes. And he shouted out, I got called an N-word 15 times today. And then he recorded, I sat down with one of my buddies, another black guy in tears, just started streaming down my face, and I said, what the F, man? Is this America? That's the question before all of you. Now, I think that's the kind of thing that, that really can cut through, and even to uh, some of those Republican senators. Um, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I think that was in, in, incredibly powerful in doing two things. One, to put this argument at the highest possible plane, which is what kind of country do we want to be? And do we want to be the type of country where the president can send a mob up to Congress to try to overturn the election results? And it was powerful in another way for because of something that they were doing all throughout today, and that it was to define the victims in this case. And the victims in this case were not you know, let me back up and say the way Dem the way Donald Trump has always won political battles, the way he's always kept Republicans on side with him is to start a war with somebody else, usually the Democrats, but it could be liberals in the media and, you know, pick your your cause. And the managers today were, I think, trying to to say the victims in this case, not us, the victims were police officers, Mike Pence, all of you. Republicans and Democrats alike in this body, uh, to to you know to try to keep Trump from portraying this as just a, a fight between him and the Democratic Party. They want to show that it is both a a high constitutional principle that's at stake here, which is an argument they made in the last impeachment, but also the real people you need to think about here were the law enforcement officers who lost their lives and who lost three fingers, one of them whom lost three fingers, as Jamie Raskin said, uh, 100, I think he said 140 of them suffered injuries and Republican politicians whose lives were put at risk. This isn't a partisan issue. This is um, uh, about all of you. Yeah. I mean, the one um, point that I think the only point that the Trump's defense scored today because they didn't speak came at the very end and it was a bit of well, a they fly. scored there by not speaking they scored 
Yeah, given uh, yeah how pathetic they were. Well, I look, you know, actually, I didn't think Shone was that bad. Castor was absolutely pathetic. I mean, it was the as we discussed yesterday, that was the worst legal presentation I've ever heard. I don't know about you, uh, Saul, but here's a fly in the ointment that came up at the very end tonight. When Mike Lee uh, raised an objection to, I guess it was uh, uh, Cicilline who quoted from him based on press reports about the phone call during the riot that Trump makes, thinking he's calling Tuberville, but actually gets Lee. And then um, uh, Lee purportedly makes some comments about what Trump was saying. Lee gets up and says, no, I never said that. I want it stricken from the record, which underscores the fact that this, you know, one of the few strong points that I think the Trump people have is the House never did an investigation. They never held any hearings. They never took any testimony. And for a lot of what they're saying about Trump's conduct that afternoon, which is critical to the case, is based on press reports. Right. Um, And that is a weakness. They don't have actual testimony or documents that they could point to. Now, the other side of the coin is Democrats can argue, okay, let's have witnesses at the trial. Let's have Lee uh, testify. Let's have Tuberville testify. Let's have everybody around the White House who was talking to Trump that day testify. Saul, what do you um, what would you say to that? Well, you know, my my view of the vote for the article of impeachment was they don't need a lot of evidence. They're reporting from the scene of the frigging crime, Michael. Uh, That's number one. Uh, There's a staying in law, uh, recip siloquitur, the thing speaks for itself. So, yes, um, exactly what President Trump did during the hours of the insurrection Uh, We don't know absolutely that for sure. I don't think that's critical to the analysis because they have been able to put together the House managers, I think, very well. Kind of, again, go back to what I said earlier. The history of the tweeting of the president and the comments of the president and the actions of the president in November after the election, well, even before, but particularly after the election, November, December, and January. That's public record. There isn't any dispute about that. So yes, oh, it would have been perfect if they had all of that in evidence, but I simply don't believe it's necessary. There are some things that are so obvious that you don't need to have extended uh, evidence gathering on. Well, yeah, and and let me add to that because, you know, I think, Mike, you're right that Cicilline didn't prove all of the things alleged about what Trump did do. But I think he was devastating in showing what Trump didn't do uh, when this was happening, when the attack was happening, when all of this violence uh, was was taking place. For one thing, he pointed out that he never condemned it. Never. Uh, he pointed out that uh, I, I can't remember what time it was, uh, sometime a little bit before two o'clock, but after the Capitol was uh, breached and there was escalating violence. Trump, I think one of his first actions was to uh, tweet out a what Cicilline, I think, called a uh, 
propaganda reel of the spe- of the Save America speech uh, that he made uh, the uh, uh, earlier that day. Um, he never called. He never tried to reach uh, Pence and uh, to see how he and his family were doing. No, instead he condemned Pence while this was happening. All the more reason. Let's have Pence as a witness. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a central figure in this whole and, drama. And, 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 but finally, yeah, but finally, and the most important point, and there's still rep- reporting to be done on this, there is no evidence that he ever did anything to deploy the National Guard. So a lot of what Trump didn't do, I think, is is a really important part yeah. of this narrative. Oh, it's important. It's important, but and it's it's known. But then again, you get into the vulnerability, which Mike, you were talking about the vulnerability of there really hasn't been a completely full investigation of that when there's so much you can look at that nobody can argue about. And one of the things, one of the really good things that I thought Stacey Plaskett did, Congresswoman Plaskett or Delegate Plaskett from the Virgin Islands. She built a very good case. And one of the things that I never even thought about that much, I thought she was very effective as an advocate, was talking about that bus that was surrounded by the Trump supporters and driven off the road or forced off the road. And again, the significance isn't necessarily that uh, some misguided Trump supporters drove a Biden bus off the road. It was the reaction by President Trump to it. And, uh, you know, all of this is a kind of a, a, a variation on a theme of uh, from the 2016 election of somebody should punch that guy in the face. It's the same kind of philosophy of life. And it's, uh, you know, he's praising these people. And I think if I remember correctly, one of the persons involved in that, am I getting this right, was actually at the Capitol. And 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 in uh, a leadership role w- with the mob yes. at the Capitol. So uh, she was slow in building it, but I thought it was very effective. And again, my my point is, I think it is significant, the very significant, the amoral way, the essentially sociopathic way that the president responded, unsurprisingly, on the day of the insurrection, on the day of the assault. But there's so much. I mean, I think as a general proposition, that's undeniable. Don't get bogged down in the details of that. He did this at 236. He did this at 239. So, Saul, just to be clear, as a former uh, deputy independent counsel who helped build the case against Bill Clinton that led to his impeachment, you would vote to convict Donald Trump based on the evidence in this trial? Unquestionably. Now, that's assuming that you believe that you can convict a former president. And uh, well, I, that, I think- that, that's what's on the table right now. I mean, the Senate has voted. The trial can proceed. Um, so, right, but I mean, that's a settled matter, right? Getting over that hurdle, which, by the way, the Senate's going to be, It's. Uh, I think it's very unlikely. In the unlikely event that he is convicted, I think it's very unlikely that, that the Supreme Court would ever decide, you know, that that was a justiciable issue. Uh, so, but that aside, unquestionably, I would vote. I would vote to convict. If you vote, if you voted as most of the Republican senators did, uh, that this proceeding is unconstitutional because he's a former president, um, and then you're persuaded by the evidence 
that he committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Could you then vote? I mean, clearly you could, but uh, do you think any of these Republicans might then vote for conviction? I mean, the names that I've heard, I think I think uh, Senator Thune of South Dakota today said that he thought the presentation was very, very compelling. McConnell uh, has said McConnell, on, on a Portman? number of occasions that he that he is keeping an open mind. All of that suggests that even if they think that the that the uh, trial is un- unconstitutional, they could still vote to convict. Well, if you take the position that the Constitution gives to the Senate the sole authority, which which certainly is how the Constitution reads, the sole authority to try impeachments and you lose on that jurisdictional issue, the court rules, which means the majority of the Senate rules that, in fact, you can convict uh, of impeachable offenses a former president, then I think it's intellectually consistent to say, okay, I lost on that issue, and now I'm going to go to the merits. Actually, can can I just say, because I had a Twitter exchange with Byron York about this very matter today. Don't be criticizing Byron York. (laughs) No, no, we had a uh, exchange, okay? Because he said how, he raised the question, how could any senator who voted that it was unconstitutional then vote to convict? And I said, um, here's the rationale. The Senate voted that the uh, trial is constitutional and can proceed. The analogy is you're under indictment or you're being sued. You file a motion to dismiss the counts or dismiss the lawsuit. The judge rejects your motion and the trial proceeds based on the evidence. You have to live by the evidence in the trial. So, it seems to me that's the analogy, and therefore, you know, senators who thought it was unconstitutional could vote to convict. Well, I think a better analogy might be, uh, let's say that somebody had tried to bring this to the Supreme Court and say, we want you to decide the constitutional issue, which is a jurisdictional issue, right. unlike Nixon v. United States, where the Supreme Court said, we're not going to tell the Senate how to how to proceed procedurally in an impeachment trial. Let's say somebody had brought it to the Supreme Court and said, this is different. It's a jurisdictional issue. We want you to decide. We think we don't have the jurisdiction because it's a former president. And the Supreme Court said, you're wrong. Okay. That to me is the analogy. Okay. We lost. We're wrong. Let's decide it on the merits. Are they going to do that? Yeah. Well, come on. Right. All right. Let's get back to politics for a second. Matt, uh, you advise Democrats uh, for for a living, but um, what is your sense of of whether the House managers may be able to persuade some of these Republican senators? I, I'm sure you're skeptical that they'll get the 17 they need or 11 more. I guess if you assume that the six who voted to let the trial proceed will vote for conviction, you think they'll get. A few more. Yeah. What do you What do you think? I look. I, I think it's going to be very hard, and I, I think the entire discussion you were just having. The the I mean the the problem with having a logical discussion about how they'll decide whether they can actually vote to convict if they believe it's constitutional or not is it it assumes that that first decision on constitutionality was on the level, and I don't think it was. I think if this were an impeachment of a Democratic president, none of those senators who said it was 
unconstitutional to uh, try a former president who, by the way, was still president when he was impeached. They, they keep leaving that out. Um, they, they would have voted the other way. It's a question of political desire. And I, I think, look, clearly, you know, there are six, five or six votes that are in play. I don't know if Cassidy's actually in play for conviction or not. I think the first five, you know, Romney and Collins, Murkowski, I, I think they clearly are. I think you kind of have a, a cap of around 56, 57 votes. After that, I don't think you get any more unless you get 67. You know, the old, the, the old hang together, hang separately quote, quote, you, you know, if you see, you know, if you get to, if you start getting around, you're not going to get to even 60, I think, unless you've got McConnell and Thune and they're bringing along some of the senators who are retiring like Portman and Burr. Um, you don't think McConnell opens the floodgates that he doesn't give cover uh, to a bunch of other Republicans? No, I, I don't. I don't. If if I think if I don't think McConnell will vote to convict. Look, I, here's the thing. I think McConnell will vote to con- his vote will be entirely based on what he thinks is in the interests of the Republican Senate conference. Period. And that will somewhat depend on him counting other Republican votes and seeing how many Republican votes there are going to be to convict. I don't think McConnell is going to be vote number 56 and be the only, you know, and and, and the vast majority of his his conference. It would be 57 because presumably. Well, no, if no the, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not. I'm not assuming Cassidy yet. I don't okay. think you can assume Cassidy's a, a vote to convict. Um, I'm not even necessarily, you know, assuming uh, Collins and, and Toomey, although I think they're they're more likely. So is there what about something that that the that the presentations is so strong and so powerful and the Trump defense is so anemic and pathetic that the. That, that that they'll feel a need to do something. And so therefore some sort of censure motion or I, you know, what? I, I don't, you know, I, I just don't see it. I mean, look, I, I think if they, if they fail to convict him, they're going to do it. The, the way they get themselves out of that box um, that there's been this powerful presentation and you need to do something is they just make this argument, this, I think, yeah, well, it's not absurd, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it carries the day, this argument that it's unconstitutional for them to to hold this trial in the first place. And so, you know, you'll start to see the, the, the stronger the evidence is and the more compelling it is and the more they hear from the public, um, the more you will see their statements start to come from the, well, what happened that day was terrible. Obviously, we condemn the mob. No, the the president the president's actions were certainly unacceptable, but the trial is unconstitutional. I, I don't see look and and the problem with a censure resolution is after a, a conviction vote fails, there's no democratic um, reason to bring a censure motion. Well, up Tim, Tim Kaine is still pushing it. it. Says it's a live option. Tim Tim Kaine is not the leader of the Senate. Uh, I, I, Tim Kaine's a great senator. I think a, there's no political rationale for the Democrats to do it because it gives Republicans a way to say they've done something when in fact they haven't. Well, there is um, still the possibility, even if Trump is acquitted, which we have to say is still remains likely, despite all the evidence, uh, that there can yet be some accountability. I thought it was interesting today that the Fulton County prosecutor 
said she was opening up an investigation into his pressuring of um, Raffensperger, uh, the the, uh, Republican Secretary of State in Georgia. I think that has some possibilities. But the one that I think could have the most legs, and I want to get solid just to wrap up here, your thoughts on this, is a civil lawsuit brought by some of those police officers or the family of one of the deceased police officers uh, where the standard would be preponderance of evidence and you have Trump as part of a conspiracy that um, violated the rights of um, of the police officers. What do you think? Hey, before Saul answers, can I hijack and add a question? Sure, and, go and, ahead. And, and that's, you know, for whether there is a, you know, a, any kind of criminal charge um, uh, given the evidence we've seen, that the criminal charge I think is still a high bar for incitement. It's yeah. a very, it's clearly a very high bar. But I'm just my right. my text chains the last few days with former U.S. attorneys. I, I yeah, I, and it's interesting a lot, because a lot of people raising the question. And what I, I, you Saul know. <laughs> said that this was an open and shut case in terms of impeachment, but uh, yeah, but what about you know whatever seditious Crimi- conspiracy criminal and civil? So I'll take it away. Well, uh, civil is easy. Uh, I really, I really don't do civil law, so I'm not going to answer that. that. <laughs> so, so you won't be hired to bring the case, right? Wait, Saul. Saul, you're a pundit. You have to. You have to just make something up, even yeah. if you don't have an answer. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the analysis about whether to bring a suit in a civil suit has to do with what where your forum is. And I would imagine a civil suit, a wrongful death suit, would be brought in D.C., and that's a pretty good forum in pursuing Donald Trump. Uh, you know, on the criminal side, you, when you talk about seditious conspiracy and that kind of stuff, I think it's a very high bar. But keep this in mind, you know, this is a, a little law nerdy stuff, con law nerdy stuff. But there was a big debate academically and in the legal community in the 20s, the 1920s, about uh, when First Amendment law, as we know it, was developing from the anti-war movement in the in the First World War. And there was a there was a test developed by Learned Hand, a uh, famous appellate judge uh, in the Second Circuit, New York judge, who had what's called the masses test. We learned about this in law school. And it's a test that ultimately wasn't followed. And Learned Hand's position was, it's real simple. If you advocate violation of the law, I don't care whether it's imminent or not. If you are advocating violation of a law on the books, that's it. You don't have any First Amendment protection. Uh, That test was ultimately rejected by the Supreme Court. And it's probably a good thing because if that test was still around, uh, Martin... Luther King would have been spending a lot more nights and years in jail uh, than he did, because the rule now is if you're arrested under a law and you challenge the constitutionality of it and you're correct, then the arrest is invalid from the beginning. So then we've got to test the, the Brandenburg versus Ohio test that we know now, which is uh, are you inciting Uh, intending to incite imminent lawless activity, and is it likely to result in imminent lawless activity? Uh, And everybody thinks that's a very difficult test, and it is. However, what we always learned about that case was that, well, you get to look at more than just the words. You look at the words, and the words are important 
but you look at all of the surrounding circumstances and the knowledge of the person who utters the words. And that's where you really do need to bring a criminal prosecution, which I admit would be extremely difficult and is very unlikely, but that's where you really need to develop a case. It's gonna take some time. It's gonna take an investigation. You have a very aggressive, competent and ambitious acting U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, uh, Michael Sherwin, who I know and I hope is allowed to stay on. Uh, he's, a, he's a fairly apolitical guy. And uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But it is. Okay. So so one just quick follow up on that. If, if there were an, an investigation and the investigation showed uh, that um, Trump actively thwarted the uh, deploying of the National Guard, you know, um, obviously it eventually happened, but it happened, I think, because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the acting secretary of defense called the vice president, <laughs> not the president. But is is that the kind of evidence uh, that would show, um, you know, and, and, and you. That's proved, not incitement. That's not the well, incitement but no, part No, but I mean, you add that to. That's the impeachable conduct that took place afterwards. There are a lot right. of statutes on the book. We see this with the early prosecutions of these people. It's just let's get them. Let's get them charged. And a lot of them is just entering a restricted area. But there's also a federal crime known as accessory after the fact. Right. So all of that could be factored in. Again, it's it's going to be extremely unlikely, but it's something that Sherwin has said he's going to look into. So who knows? All right. Well, um, I should point out that last week after we had uh, law school professors Phil Bobbitt and Steve Vladek on, we offered uh, law school credits to skullduggery listeners who actually <laughs> made it all the way through. They can get additional credits listening to Professor Weisenberg. Well, I'm not a professor, but Phil Bobbitt, when, when, I, when I was a, uh, sorry to interrupt, when I was a fresh law at University of Texas School of Law, and I'm not even going to tell you when, uh, Phil Bobbitt was one of the uh, first-year con law professors. Right. And uh, in, uh, if he didn't like a question that you asked, he would throw chalk at you. I just did, you did you pass <laughs> his class? I didn't take his. Thank God I didn't have <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, um, Saul and Matt, uh, thanks again. And, um, you know, I think there'll be lots more to talk about as the trial proceeds. So uh, we will stay in touch. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.